everybody, Anne Louise Gittleman here for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, and this episode is brought to you by our good friends at Unikey Health, unikeyhealth.com for the finest supplements in anti-aging, immune building, and overall health. Check them out, please. I've been representing them for over 30 years, and now I have a very dear friend that I think I've known about for over 30 years. She's none other than Donna Gates, who will be talking about the genius in your genes. Donna, tell us a little bit about your background. Hi, because I'm so happy to be on the podcast. I'm, I'm honored, actually. Well, you know, a lot of times when I do a podcast, people read this long, formal uh, introduction bio, but I, I really am just somebody who's been doing this for quite a long time, about 30 years. And over those 30 years, I, I was the first person to ever really talk about the what the microbiome, but there wasn't yes. a word called microbiome, so I called it... <laughs> I made up inner ecosystem and for a good, I don't know, 10 years or so, I was teaching about it and explaining how important it is. Um, you know, I explained how I figured out and then explained out how I explained to people how it gets started inside the gut. And then of course I realized that, you know, how to, so it starts as where hopefully starts well, when we're a baby, but then how do you maintain it throughout the rest of your life? And that's where I realized that fermented food was so important. So I then, you know, also started on a, getting to teach people about fermented foods and why they're important and how to make them. And so I've been promoting those for 25 years. They're finally getting hot. And now when people are very concerned about their immune system, we're seeing finally that even mainstream America is starting to want to know about the fermented foods and which ones are the best. And because people have more time, they're starting to stay home and we are actually willing to make them. 15 years ago, I got into autism, you know, helping kids, parents get their kids well and was very successful. We got lots and lots of children started getting well because again, I, we know they have yeast infections. We're addressing that with the diet. And I, I actually wrote a book, 20. In 1994, it came out, and it, it, it really was a diet based on helping people overcome uh, yeast infections, candidiasis, and the kids are all born with one, so that really helped, but we also were working on is reestablishing gut health, and because of the gut-brain connection, that really made a big difference in changing the inflammation in the brain and pulling out of that, so that's one of the things I've done that I'm proud of, but I don't want to talk about me anymore. <laughs> no, no, I want you to talk about you because you've been one of these guiding nutritional lights for over 30 years. And I love your book, The Body Ecology Diet. I mean, that's been a, a classic for how many years? You wrote that in 1994, you say? Yeah, 94. And people are still reading it all the time. Exactly. Because it's still relevant. You were, you, were, yes. you were years ahead of your time, my dear. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes I think that those of us, and you know this too, that you're, you, you're guided on us, like you're steered toward, like when I look back and I wonder, how did I get steered toward finding information about this world in our gut and, and then figure out how, where it starts? Like there were journals that I would read and I see microbiologists talking about bacteria, but nobody was, they were just reporting it. Uh, their information in journals, but nobody tied it all together or made it relevant 
useful to us. So, but when I look back all those years, I think, wow. <laughs> but I feel like something was always guiding me, sort of. And I think that that's how, it was just time, time for this information to come into the world. Today, the, um, you know, the research on the microbiome is probably the hottest thing out there, although I'm finding that genes and nutritional genomics have, are now, I think for the rest of our life, we're going to be hot and heavy into nutritional genomics, personalizing our diets, and discovering more about who we are, because we can do that today. So... One other thing, though, you didn't mention, which I think the world needs to know. You were the first to introduce stevia to the public. Tell, me, tell us a little bit about that. Well, before the book came out, I started putting it out into the universe. To, you know, at that time, aspartame was this, the artificial sweetener or sucralose. I think not the other one that people use. But anyway, my mother used it all the time. It was terrible. But very bad artificial sweeteners, and I knew they weren't good. But then, you know, the other choice, the natural choice is sugar. And I realized that was absolutely essential to be off of sugar to get well. So again, I put it out in the universe. I said, there has got to be, please, if there's anything out there that could be a substitute for NutraSweet and Equal, help me find it. And amazingly, when I, once again, I look back and I... Through an interesting story, actually, I ended up with a connection of all places in China mm. with a university, a, a famous uh, university in Beijing, and they had been, so the Japanese actually came up with a uh, ability to take the green leaf and pull out the elements in the leaf, stevia side, rubadia side, and, you know, uh, they, they had come up with that, but then the Chinese went further and they had found a formula, a way of, you know, actually increasing the rabadia side, using more of that to create a much more delicious stevia. Well, you know, much more delicious product, but they spoke Chinese, I don't. And in our conversations, I kept referring to it as stevia and they did too. So I brought it to the US. It was uh, it was actually banned from coming in, coming in. Mm. But just before they put the ban on, I had a huge shipment sent to me through these friends who wanted to thank me for something I did for them. They're Chinese for the embassy in Washington. And uh, I got all this white powder that looked like cocaine in boxes and boxes. <laughs> oh, dear. So I ended up getting a center that um, they were people that were handicapped and they put on their gloves and masks and packed everything. And I actually decided that, I, you know, it's banned and, and everybody else said, don't, don't sell it, you'll get in trouble. And I was nursing a baby and I thought, but why would it have been given to me if I'm not supposed to do something with it? And then interestingly enough, Robert Atkins showed up in my life and he was actually a big believer in artificial, not so much artificial sweeteners, but alternative sweeteners. Yes. He loves stevia. So he helped me a lot promote it. You know, kept telling people in his newsletter about it. And that's how Body Ecology started on that one product. But Unbelievable. Now, yeah, now it's all over the world and it took off because it really is the safest, best way to sweeten something. And you'll find it in so many products. For a long time, it was banned because, uh, well, because. Well, actually what's happened in the, over about 17 years, 
<clears throat> the um, the companies behind um, Monsanto and all, they ended up purchasing um, and joint venturing with the Chinese and everybody to grow. They actually literally own all the stevia plants in the world today. So they don't mind it being approved as a sweetener because they, they're making money on it. And, and so that's how it eventually became approved as a sweetener. Before that, it was only approved as a dietary supplement and manufacturers like yogurt companies, for example, uh, chain shakes, they couldn't use it as a sweetener until that, that law was changed. And the only reason it was changed is because Coke and Pepsi applied for stevia to become uh, a, a actual sweetener, a le legitimate sweetener. But mm. you know what? It's not really stevia. It's really ribotiocide, and that's what makes it taste so good. But since I introduced it to everybody, and I didn't know I called it stevia, that's why it's stuck today all over the world. Oh, what a story. So you've been a pioneer in so many areas, and I know you're moving into a brand new area called nutritional genomics. So tell me what that's all about. Is that about the, the genius in your genes? Is it about taking certain tests that show you what your predispositions are so that you can overcome it with the science of epigenetics? Absolutely. And let's see, where do I start? Well, first of all, going back to the beginning, I was always teaching about seven universal laws that I wanted people to know that body ecology wasn't a diet. It was actually a way of life. And these universal laws were guiding us. They were telling us, you know, what to do to get well or to stay well. And one of those uh, was the principle of uniqueness. And even way back then, I kept saying, you know, because we would go through these phases, like we were, everybody was raw or whatever, and now everybody's paleo or keto, but, you know, and I would think, no, 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 you can't all, there's certain things we all, nobody does well on sugar. You can take sugar out, you can take gluten out, but other than that, we have to find, you know, the right kind of diet for ourselves and, and, and create a personalized diet, so I'd say that, and nobody would hear me, and then along comes nutritional genomics. Well, it isn't a new field, believe it or not. It's been around for at least 30 years. Ruth DeBusk was one of the real pioneers that started you know, talking about it and teaching uh, dietitians in college about it, but it just didn't catch on for a long time. I, I, I'm sure it's like computers, that computers have been around for a long time before we actually saw any or before we purchased them or before they got smaller and more refined. Anyway, so it's not that new of a science. And um, anyway, uh, and the other thing is, it, it's um, proof really of what I was saying that we're all unique. So there's a lot of, there's 20 something thousand genes, like nobody knows exactly, but they're around 20,000 genes. And a lot of them, they don't know what they do. They don't know exactly what they do yet. They haven't had a chance to tell. But also some of them don't do anything. <clears throat> at least as far as they can tell. And yet some of them have been absolutely well-researched. Now, one of my frustrations right now is that there are, there's some people, one person in particular is going on all these different podcasts telling people that the whole entire thing is worthless. Like you can't, um, you know, it's just because, because like Ben Lynch came out first with talking about MTHFR that gene. 
And so people, you know, they jumped on this whole gene thing from him, from listening to him. And people probably overdid it and gave too much credit to MTHFR because you know, there's a lot of genes out there. But I, I really appreciate what Ben did because he awakened people. He made them, a lot of people became very, very interested in genes from him. But yes, and he will say that today himself, it's just one gene in the body. <clears throat> and there's all these other important genes that you want to look at too. So you can't look up and see if you have MTHFR one or two copies of the variant and say, oh my gosh, this is why I'm sick or this is why I'm having all these problems because it's just one gene. And if you're gonna do a good job of helping people really know themselves, you have to look at a whole bunch of different genes. You do, you do, but I'm gonna just interrupt you here. You know, I've had my genes done and I'm a believer that DNA is not your destiny, but it surely gives you a good roadmap. And I think I told you at one point that of the, the two MTHFR genes, I have three, block, three pathways that are blocked out of the four. So knowing that gave me such good perspective in terms of the reasons I'm so sensitive and can't detoxify like the normal individual. And I write about those things and can't do a lot of my own protocols because they're too, they're too severe, too extreme for my sensitive system. So it can be exceedingly helpful. And that was a real, I don't know, it was like a, um, a landmark for me to really understand that whenever I'm feeling unwell, I know I'm taking too much of a supplement. I'm overdoing too much detoxification of a particular drink, too, much, too many coffee enemas, and I cut back because it's just part of the way I'm wired. So I think it's so individual. And I have to ask you, I mean, I know there are quite a lot of genes, but how do people get tested to know exactly what they have? Well, um, Probably the first one that, you know, testing company that came out, they call it direct to consumer. So you can, you don't have to have a university or a doctor or someone test your genes. There you can get what's called whole genome testing where they test all your genes, which, you know, I, I don't think you need that, but direct to consumer. First, it was 23andMe. And millions of people have sent their saliva into 23andMe. Mm -hmm. They've gotten a report back through their email that says, you know, here's some things about you. And then they also supply you with your raw data, but nobody, most people can't get into that raw data. So it's only so valuable. Um, so another testing company that I like a lot is uh, Self-Decode. And the reason I like that is because um, they, Joe Cohen has recently, he's always improving what they're doing and they have a lot of scientists behind their work. A lot of excellent writers. So you can order that kit. They don't make money on the kit. It's the same. And price. what's it called again, Donna, for, for our listeners? Self, S-E-L-F, decode, D-E-C-O-D-E. -E. So the reason I like Joe's kit is because he has way more genes being reported on it, on that chip, than 23andMe allows you to have. And he's constantly you know, pulling programs together. Like for example, if you, you know, you can um, uh, go, like he'll si sign up for example, to see how you'll do with the COVID. And what are your chances of, you know, of being, having a strong immune system? But he's, got, he's got them for mood and everything, which I like. But I've actually been working for the last three years on something 
uh, it's I call it butterfly genomics because oh you know, you know, you know caterpillars you know I love the name I, I yeah well the caterpillars cute I think they're cute but, but then of course what happens is very nicely metaphorical exactly and so that's the potential that I know we have by knowing our genes but what I have found after sitting in lots of classes online and in person is a lot of professionals, doctors and naturopaths and all trying to learn this because we know it's the future, but the way it's being taught is it's sort of a little bit over people's head and it doesn't have enough structure to it. So I put together butterfly genomics so that you can pull someone's DNA, like say from the South Dakota kid, into butterfly genomics when it's completed. And then the practitioners who come and train with me will be able to learn exactly what to do so you have these variants there's nothing to be afraid of is i love what you said Anne marie about it being a roadmap for you to follow so here you are a practitioner you're trying to you're working with somebody now you have a roadmap to help them but also for help for them to understand themselves like i've done consultations with people that they were i'd like to give you an example actually because they were blown away by just a little discovery that made everything make sense to them. Share, please do share. Oh, so um, so I was working with a woman that um, she's in Australia, a wonderful person, but she had, like many people, spent a fortune in testing, going around to see all types of people, great people, really excellent, um, you know, people who were very good at what they did, but she just couldn't understand, you know, why she couldn't get well. Was there some missing piece? So we talked, I looked at her genes, and there was different things that I found. I can't remember them all right now without re-looking, but two that really stand out were gut genes. One of those genes was M-U-C, like Mary, Uncle Charlie, M-U-C-2. That gene is the gene that produces mucus, on the lining of the gut. So that mucus is really important. It protects the gut lining. It allow, you know, it's there and then bacteria can nestle into it, but it's really important to have that mucus lining. So if you have variants in MUC2, you're not producing mucus. Now, here's an example of the importance of the bacteria in this whole gene picture. The, so, there's a bacteria called Apermansia that eats the mucus on the gut lining. And the more it eats, the more our body produces, uh, the, the body produces more mucus for the, to protect the gut lining. So Apermansia is a really important bacteria for having a healthy gut lining. Now, so just kind of hold that for a minute. And then I want to talk about another gene that she had called FUT2, F-U-T2. This gene, uh, so uh, I know you're an AB. No, no, B. I'm a B. You're an A. I remember that. Oh, I was thinking you're an AB. Okay. Okay, you're a B. So you secrete uh, sugar that's in your blood as a B into your, into your mouth. It's in your saliva. And it feeds the bacteria in your mouth, into your tears, into the gut lining. And so... If somebody has variants in food too, they're not secreting their blood sugar into the gut, <coughs> excuse me, and they cannot feed the bacteria in their gut. 
So think about this. You are a little baby. You're born in the world, into the world by slipping through the birth canal, hopefully. <laughs> and you're now exposed to all these microbes. And that's the beginning of the microbiome or the inner ecosystem in your little gut. And then uh, bifidus show up, bifidus infantis and other bifidus show up and they need to be fed in order to grow and to help create this microbiome over the next several months and in the next, throughout the next year, basically. But what if you're not feeding them? What if you're not secreting sugar into the gut lining uh, or even the mouth for that, for that fact? You know, this, those are the people that are going to have more trouble with, with uh, teeth and gum problems, but definitely with a gut. So here she had two uh, issues, two genes that were putting her at risk for not having a healthy gut. And we all know how critical it is to have a healthy gut. And, and so that means also from the beginning of her life, she would have had this problem from the very beginning. So she did. She had gut problems throughout her life. And, and of course, one of the battle cries of functional medicine is first feed the gut. Well, or first fix the gut. So now this does, as you said, give a person a roadmap for what to do and then what to focus on. It's like really foundational. And then um, it just helps you also, it helps make sense of things. Like why is it that I couldn't get well? Um, and and uh, uh, again, the, well, I mean, there's another, there's so many genes that are important to know about. That's why it makes me mad when people come back to me and say, well, you know, I heard that so-and-so said on this podcast that this whole testing thing is a waste. Uh, it's ridiculous. And, and I think, well, wait a minute. There's some genes, for example, that I would want to know about. They're liver genes. And the liver genes always start off with CYP450. So... There's CYP1A1, CYP1B1, and CYP3A4, and another gene called COMP, C-O-M-T, which is not a, not a liver gene. But these four together tell you something very, very important. If you're a man, definitely if you're a woman, because they have to do with metabolism of estrogen. Mm. So, so let's say that you have no problem with CYP1A1, uh, but there's a handful of 1B1 genes. And let's say when you look at them, you see, wow, there's a lot of heterozygous, heterozygous, heterozygous. There's a lot of, you know, together, this gene is under-functioning. Well, what does that mean? It means that this, so... <laughs> A little bit complicated, but estrogen, there are three of them, esterone, estradiol, and estriol. estriol. Mm -hmm. So esterone is the one that people are concerned about that can lead to cancer. All the estrogens break down into a final stage called metabolites, and the metabolite for esterone is 4-hydroxy. That gene, that CYP1B1, that's the gene that puts you at risk for having problems with that 4-hydroxyesterone. And that can cause, you know, for, uh, for ovarian and breast cancer, that puts a woman at risk, men too, for prostate. 
So let's say you're working with somebody or, you know, you find that out about yourself. It's not about BRCA. BRCA, BRCA is a tumor. It's suppressing, it turns off the growth of a tumor. So it's a tumor suppressor gene. So of course you want that to be working. Um, but this is another whole pathway that I think is very important for uh, men and women to know about. The the other one, the 3A4, that that gene is about the balance between what's called 2-hydroxy and 16-hydroxy. So people that know, that are listening to this, that are practitioners, all they'll, they'll understand this. But uh, the other gene that's so important to put in, put into the picture is COMPT, C-O-M-T. And if you have a slow a version of COMP that's slow, slow to function, you have a reduced ability to clear uh, this esterone. Now, how, that's and then how prevalent? Too. How prevalent are these dysfunctional genes in the liver pathways? Well, okay, so I see that one B one all the time. Um, I often see 1A1 fine and 3A4, but it's that 1B1 I like to know about. And then I'll go check comp. Now, uh, that is so, so prevalent because I would call it a survival gene. Now, here's what that gene means. Um, if we get stressed out, and man, I think, has always had opportunities to be stressed out. You know, early man was always trying to find his next meal. And life has never been difficult. We've gone through wars and, you know, it's just part of life on this planet. We, we face stressful situations. So dope, what happens with, when you do, when you're under stress, your, your um, dopamine goes up. You become very alert, very focused. If you've got a variant in, this, in a slow functioning comp, then, after the stressful situation is over, you, uh, you you stay real stressed out. The dopamine doesn't go down. Your adrenaline doesn't go down. It, you stay very alert. You stay very focused. And this would have helped you survive all throughout the ages. The person who heard something rattle in the bushes and got very focused and alert and stayed focused and alert um, would have survived. So this gene is really common because it's a survival gene. Um, oh. So, you know, together you can look at that and you can say, aha, let's help this person work around. That's what I always call them, work arounds. Uh, this is an Achilles heel, you know, a little bit of a weak spot, puts a little bit of a risk factor, only a risk, but let's do a workaround for it. Well, that's where things like Dim and um, special sulforaphane. sulforaphane, which you get from like my favorite way to get sulforaphane is eating arugula because it's a it's a crisp vegetable that you can easily eat raw by throwing it in a salad or a smoothie, and it it all, it gives you that so breaks I mean ultimately breaks down into sulforaphane basically because it's got the uh, the right components to ultimately make sulforaphane. So, so cruciferous vegetables are really, really important for this particular pathway to work well. Um, and then of course, the other thing I would say to this man or woman is, you know what? Let's be sure that you, throughout your life, you monitor 
your esterone, your 4-hydroxyesterone. Let's see if it is breaking down into the wrong form that puts you more at risk for breast or ovarian cancer, prostate cancer. And you can do that with a hormone test, a urine, urinary test, like the Dutch, uh, Dutch yes. hormone test. Because they, they show you the metabolites of estrogen. It's a really good test for, uh, you know, to find a practitioner who can do that with you. So is this something currently, Donna, that you offer to the public that you can actually analyze and then make recommendations based on nutritional genomics? Well, for the last several years, I have been, you know, doing occasional, I mean, I do consultations with people just to sharpen my own skills, but there's so many people, millions really, that are going to need help. So what I've really done more than that is work on butterfly genomics and create this educational program so that we can get many practitioners trained. You know, it's a kind of like, like what I find when I look out into the world is that a lot of people are trying to jump in as if they started school in high school. <clears throat> but, um, <clears throat> excuse me, but they need to go to first grade first and learn the basics. And I feel like, um, but, but it's not just about genes really, it's really about the epigenetics. And so epigenetics is really the most important thing to look to know about. The genes are sitting there basically waiting for some kind of signal from the gut, the microbes in the gut. A signal could be if you've got a pathogen in the gut, they're producing lipopolysaccharides, that's signaling the genes. You know, all these other things out in our environment, stress, the way we eat, how much sleep do we get, do we get any exercise? All those things are expressing the genes, turning them off and turning them on. So, you know, looking at your genes is, is useful. Like you said, it provides that roadmap. But, but it's really important to know the epigenetic world. Yes, yes, so, yes, so yes. Say, so there's a group of genes um, that are brain and like neurotransmitter genes. So let's say that you do have problems with methylation, MTHFR and choline and SAMe and some of those other um, genes in the methylation cycle. Well, that's affecting your neurotransmitters. Well, so then you want to go over and look at those neurotransmitters. Well, there's an important gene um, in the brain called BDNF. And if you've got, um, you know, variants in BDNF, the workaround for that is exercise. Um, BDNF is called the fertilizer for the, the brain. So you need more fertilizer, be sure you exercise. And let's say you hate exercise. It can be a walk, it can be rebounding on your rebounder, but you've just got to get your body, you know, your metabolism up and your heartbeat racing and uh, for a little while at least to produce, to feed that, to feed the BDNF gene. So you mentioned blood type a little while back and you remembered I was a B. I remembered you were an A mm -hmm. from many, many years ago. So let's move ahead a little bit, if you will. And, and how would that connect into the current COVID-19 pandemic? I know there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that talked about the risk factors for various blood types. How do you weigh in on that? Well, what they, if you read it, it takes a while to get down to this important part, but A's they found had a greater risk of dying from the COVID. So you might, if you're an A, you think, uh-oh, I'm an A, this is kind of scary. But 
if you understand that I'm an egg, so I understand it pretty darn well. And by the way, I just want to tell, just throw in here that when I began working with children years ago and their moms, I would always say, what is your blood type? What is your son's blood type? Because like both of us, you and me, we, we knew uh, Dr. Giordano who wrote a book, one man's food is another, another one man's yes. food is another man's poison. James Diadamo. Mm-hmm. And then his son Peter came out with Eat Right for Your Type. But you and I were way into it, way before that. Yes. So I, all those years, I suppose close to 40 years, I've been asking people, what's your blood type? So I just collected all this empirical information. I don't think there's a whole lot of research on it. People don't think it's even that important to know. But um, there, there definitely is some research on it. But, you know, so fast forward to when I'm working with these kids and over and over and over again, their mothers would say, well, my son's an A. And I say, are you? Yes, I am, as a matter of fact. Or no, but his father is. So these little kids, eight out of 10 of them were blood type A. I told that to Jeff Bradstreet, Dr. Bradstreet, the next time I saw him, he checked his, all his files and he said, I'm finding the same thing too. Mm. So what does that mean? It means A's are definitely more susceptible to uh, anything. You know, if you've got an A child, if you've got uh, somebody with COVID, because A's have a much harder time controlling inflammation. Mm. And so, you know, we have the auto... The autonomic nervous system, we've got the sympathetic side, which is the side where you run away from the danger, the lion or whatever, and everything shuts down in your body. You know, you don't go to the bathroom, you don't, you don't have sex, you, no parasolic movement, just the heart goes crazy and beats up, but that's what's happening in the sympathetic system. And then your other side, your parasympathetic system, is really the system that calms all that down, produces an, a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, and that calms you back down. Well, A's don't seem to be able to do that very effectively. They stay over there in the fight or flight side too much, have trouble getting into the parasympathetic rest and digest. Now, uh, I can give so many examples of how you can see that, but that's what you can tell about the kids is that they are already, you know, sensitive to begin with. Are they good candidates to be vaccinated? Uh, I have very strong opinions about that. I don't think, you know, years ago when the whole concept of vaccination came out, it was very valuable. People were older. They gave you maybe one smallpox vaccination. Um, maybe later on, the baby boomers got a polio vaccine. But um, today, we're vaccinating our children as soon as they're born. And too many vaccines by the time they're two years old, they're not good candidates for vaccines like that. And you've got to build that immune system, that, which is all about building the inner ecosystem in the gut. And these kids didn't do that. They have yeast infections. They really screwed up gut and their A's. Mm. So they, they're, they're, they, they are much more, full, they're full of anxiety to begin with and an inflamed, more likely to be inflamed. And anytime you're trying to heal from something, and 
a vaccination, uh, COVID, whatever, you can't have inflammation in your body. It's just like cytokine storm that they talk about where things just catch on fire and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Hmm. So A's are, do you think A's are more sensitive, period? I know that they can somehow be achlorhydric and not secrete enough hydrochloric acid, so digestion can be an issue. Yeast is definitely an issue. They don't have as good a survival rate when it comes to breast cancer. They're, they're the most sensitive of all blood types. Would you agree? A hundred percent. And I found a study years ago, and I can't find it since then, but I think it was in a, you know, a nutrition journal, really, but they had the scientists had taken twins in Africa and they had Korsha cores, so they were very protein malnourished. And what they discovered is because they were protein malnourished, they had very high levels of cortisol, which of course made their glucose go up too. But with the high levels of cortisol, they were obviously full of anxiety. Now, if you have Korsha core, and, and you are protein malnourished, that's what an A is going to be. They don't digest protein well because they lack stomach acid. So I think that early in life, A's need to know, or if you have an A child, that you really need to take hydrochloric acid and pepsin and support uh, your stomach acid, basically. I mean, don't, don't think it's there. Uh, do take hydrochloric acid with pepsin. And then you'll digest your protein better. You'll, uh, the cortisol will not be raging like that. And basically, it's just an important, simple thing you can do to make a big difference in your life. But that, so, so there's um, definitely have a problem with, uh, with, with uh, stomach acid. But one of the research studies I also found was that uh, A's have more, like, so, if they get H. pylori that becomes pathogenic and causes cancer, it's more likely to be in the stomach, where O's is more likely to be in the upper part of the small intestine or in the duodenum, somewhere in the intestine. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. That was Very. pretty heavily researched. But um, so why would you even have a problem with H. pylori? And see, the stomach acid controls H. pylori, so you don't get it. Uh, it doesn't become pathogenic and it doesn't cause uh, cancer in the stomach. I thought that was an interesting clue. And the other thing too is that stomach cancer is very uh, prevalent in Japan. Uh, 50, almost 60% of the Japanese are blood type A. And then the second most common blood type is B. And then there's an unusually higher number than normal ABs because you know that's a rare blood type. So You've got a B dad and an A mother, then they could have an AB child. So there's, there's ABs in Japan too, but A mostly, almost 60%. And so to me, that's so fascinating because first of all, they, uh, who are the Japanese? They're, they're great researchers. They love to work in groups. That's a typical quality of an A. Or COs, they like to be their own people and they make, their own decisions and they are very good leaders of a company or something where A's mm -hmm. will do something in a group. So they're great researchers, but you will always notice that there's this huge team of people researching something together. You don't find this one lone person out there researching something because in Japan, nobody will pay attention to them until there's a whole bunch of people involved. But mm -hmm. um, they have more um, 
stomach cancer there. So obviously they have uh, problems with stomach acid. What do they eat? Well, you know, protein is hard to digest if it's cooked. But they eat lots of fish, which is easier to digest, and they eat it raw, which is really easy to digest. Hmm. They eat a lot of sea vegetables because with that, you know, that their brain working full of being a perfectionist, all that anxiety, they tend to burn up minerals like crazy. So their diet is actually very high in minerals. Sea vegetables, which they eat at every meal. Um, and they have a couple thousand years. So you're, you're, you have a mother who's building a baby. She's already got a lot of minerals in her body. She's going to give that nutrition to her babies. So, for, um, you know, that's changing with modern Japan. And, very, very interesting. I mean, I know that just like the weather report, they'll give the report for the blood type of the day. So they take it very seriously. Well, you know, they've done a lot of research, I think as much as 50 years of research on personality. No, I use, I use that with one of my books. I wrote a book called Your Body Knows Best and uh, de detailed that. I found that the, the blood type personality was very true to form. The A's are very analytical. The O's are... Mm -hmm go-getters, the bees are a little eccentric, the ABs are planners. And I found that to be very helpful when I work with many of my clients. Well, um, I wish that they have quite a few books on the topic, but and I tried to acquire them because I've been to Japan a number of times, but they're always in Japanese. And as far as I know, no one's ever translated one, but I would love to you know, have somebody translate one. You are your blood type was the one that I use for your body knows best. Uh, was that a Japanese? It was a Japanese translation. Oh, that's really good. You'll find it totally fascinating, just like I'm finding what you're saying totally fascinating. So we're coming to an end of our discussion, my dear. What would you like my people to know? How to get in touch with you to talk a little bit about your website that may be forthcoming? How do we know? To, how do we get more information about butterfly genomics? Well, when it's ready. For, uh, for the teaching, I'm, it's a lot of work. So I'm hoping to launch it at the beginning of next year. But please just stay in touch with us. Like get our newsletter. I'm always trying to teach through the newsletter. And how do how do people get in touch with you, Donna? Give them a website oh, or give them it's a just body b o d y ecology dot com. So I think that's the best thing to do. Um, I'm on a lot of podcasts. So if you see me in a podcast listen, please, because I really do try to teach a lot through the podcast, but um, I'm always learning, and, I'm all, and I love to teach, so I just hope people just stay in touch, basically. Lovely. So I want to thank you again for being my guest. Thank you so much, Donna Gates. You're a true trooper, one of the nutritional greats. People are standing on your shoulders these days, so I just salute all the wonderful work that you've done. Well, thank you, but Anne same with you. I mean, we've been around and bringing out new information to the world. You certainly have. I don't know anybody that's written as many books as you do. Well, we're both on we're both on the same path. People are um, standing on your shoulders too, and it's an honor to know you. And you're just a one. You're so much fun. If people understood, had a chance to know you, and realize what a fun person you are to know, um, I just felt real lucky to have you know, met you a long time ago, but especially you were on my Genius of Your Genes Summit. We had such a good time. Yeah, yeah. And you're an expert in bile, which I 
Well, you're an expert in so many things. So I'm glad people are listening to the podcast. Thank you. So I want to thank all my wonderful listeners for tuning in yet to one other lovely, informative, and uh, very innovative episodes of First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Stay tuned for the next one next week. Lots of love, everybody. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.